You are listening to Geek Fest Rants on the IC Robots Radio Network. You have located Geek Fest Rants, the entertainment podcast for genre geeks like you. Shall we play a game? Covering the world of vintage and current film and television since 2010. Game over, man. Game over. Featuring in-depth conversations on sci-fi, horror, fantasy, comics, toys, and conventions. So say we all. So say we all. And now sit back, relax, and enjoy today's show. Are you just starting your day or did you just get off? They call, I go, you know. So what is it you do? I'm a driver. Oh, like a chauffeur. Anyone I'd know? I hope not. What is your name? Baby. Your name's Baby. B-A-B-Y Baby. It's one who say listen to the music all the time. Is he uh, mental? Mental meaning slow. Was he slow? No. He had an accident when he was a kid. Still has a hum in the drum. Plays music to drown it out. And that's what makes him the best. One more job and I'm done. One more job and we're straight. Now, I don't think I need to give you the speech about what happens when you say no, how I could break your legs and kill everyone you love, because you already know that, don't you? Yeah. The moment you catch feelings is the moment you catch a bullet. And your uh, waitress girlfriend, she's cute. Let's keep it that way. I want us to head west and never stop. You in? I'm in, baby. Time to face the music. Baby, we need to get out of here. I have to end this. Are we in bed together now? Baby. 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 Doc said Michael Myers. This is Mike Myers. It should be the Halloween mask. This is a Halloween mask. No, the killer dude from Halloween. Oh, you mean Jason. No. Baby, you tell me who does. She a good girl? You love her? Yes, I do. That's too bad. Hi, everybody, and welcome once again to GeekFest Rants. My name is Carlos Perone, and today we are going to start the show with Baby Driver. I've recently watched this film with Kyle, and boy, did this one sneak up on us. What an innovative action, comedy, and music that we have never seen before in this brand new film. We absolutely loved it, and we're going to tell you all about it. Then I'm going to talk to you about a Star Wars comic book. There is a 40th anniversary special hardcover comic book that takes place during Star Wars, and it's all about Luke's point of view of everything that happens to him during Star Wars A New Hope. And then in our collectibles toy segment, 
I'm going to look at Battlestar Galactica, the original Battlestar Galactica, and the action figure line that came along with it. As I continue my quest to rebuild my childhood toys, I will be going over some of my favorite ones that I managed to get and some of the ones that I'm missing. So let's start with Baby Driver, and as usual, this is going to be a spoiler-filled review. Here comes Baby Driver. What did I teach you? You are the Duke of New York. You're a number one. You will not laugh. You will not cry. You will learn by the numbers. I will teach you. Can you dig it? Open the pod bay doors, Hal. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. That spawn of Satan. <laughs> oh, really? The Force will be with you, always. For today's movie that we recently saw, we are going to talk about Baby Driver. This is a movie that, again, for me, was completely under the radar. Didn't know anything about it until some bizarre trailer showed up. And just by the name of the trailer, I'm like, this has got to be the stupidest thing ever. This is some kid driving a car, and I'm like, it just completely no interest. I don't know if you did you know, Kyle, that... This was I, in the works. I saw like an ad for it in the movie theater, like just like the poster. But it, but our movie theater has the stupidest way of. Oh, you're talking about the slideshow. Yeah, the yeah, slideshow. Yeah. It's just four guys in a car, but they're all looking at the, the side. Right, I they're all looking to the side, like, and it said "baby." Yeah, I think that might have been my like, only exposure I, too. That only thing, like I was like, oh, it's probably some like gang movie or something. I thought it was going to be a, an outright comedy yeah, or because we like that, we yeah. recently had. Baby boss, right? Yeah, or boss, boss baby. baby. Yeah. Boss baby. So I'm like thinking, this is another one of these baby something <laughs> stupid movies. That's like, okay, whatever. But then when I, yeah, I saw the the trailer. I think I was one that showed you it too. Yeah. It was, and I was like, whoa, this is awesome. Yeah. And it, it had it said 100% of Rotten Tomatoes. It's like, whoa. Yeah. It's funny how, and this is another thing that's happening now. Is I talked about this in the past. I used to be able to put on. A television show like at the movies or I forget the other names of the shows where you have Siskel and Ebert and these other guys that would do movie reviews. And that was a way that I would use in the past to check to see, all right, is this movie any good? Does anyone like it? To see if even one or two reviewers would like a movie. We don't have that anymore. We don't have television movie reviewers anymore. So now over, I don't know how many years now, it's defaulted in a way to internet-related sites. Rotten Tomato seems to be the gigantic one. For whatever bizarre reason, it is huge now in terms of people use that as a scale of whether a movie is good or not. They put it in their ads. Yeah, I think the reason why is because it takes into account all the other reviews and then yeah, it combines them. them. Yeah, it takes like 100 different reviews and aggregates it. And I, I th that's a really, that's a good way of doing it, but like... Well, but it does that. Not only does it take critics... Yeah. But then it takes audience. Yeah. So it, it gives you two scores and you have to figure out, you know, what to do with those two scores. Yeah. That said, yes, you, you can still find reviews and ads where it'll say, so-and-so loved it and this person thought it was the best thing in the world and Rotten Tomatoes, fresh score, 90% or 100% or whatever. And there is some controversy going around. I don't know if it's because certain movie makers or studios are upset when they get a bad score. That they, there seems to be this undercurrent going around that Rotten Tomatoes is a little too powerful when it comes to whether a movie is good or not. When people just cannot yeah. make up their minds and go based on whatever the website says. Yeah. 
But yeah, Kyle is right. This one, off the bat, they're advertising it as a as a hit. Yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, that's all. And you don't see too much reviews. of that. You know, you see a feel. Like, I remember Wonder Woman got a lot of good Rotten Tomatoes. Yeah, I was. Scores. I think they had like a ninety-two or something. Yeah. So when we saw the trailer, the actual trailer, it's yes, it's different. This is something that looks very different. It's an action caper, you know, robbery caper type of movie, but it has a hook. The hook is they kind of work the music that you normally would have on the soundtrack of a film, not so much the score, the music, into the film itself. The music is actually a, I don't want to say a character because I've been saying that so often lately, it's a part of the movie. In the past, I've talked about how movies like Tron and even Saturday Night Fever and their Blade Runner, for example, movies where the music is so good that it's almost a character in the movie. But the music is somewhat unimportant to the movie. Maybe Saturday Night Fever is not a, <laughs> a good example because it is the movie. The music is the movie. But in this particular case, what's happening during the film is... There are certain musical songs played that are being heard in his head, the lead character's head, because he's wearing headphones. And he is kind of doing things to the rhythm of that music that he's hearing. But not only that, obviously, what makes the film, I guess, artistic, and this is where it becomes something different, is that the way the film is cut, the way the film is portrayed and acted almost is to go along with that music, which is something very different because music is usually one of the last things they do for movies. And it is very difficult, I think, to be able to have certain songs in mind already. And not only have those songs, but acquire the rights to those songs to then be able to plan your movie based on those songs. Many times I hear stories about films that, you know, they're filming a scene and this is the song that everybody has in mind you know, that is going to go along with this scene, whether it's an action scene or whatever. And then they film it, and then they're editing, and then they can't get the rights to that song, so they have to substitute it with another song. And a lot of times it works, because, you know, people are still, you know, kind of rocking to whatever music is being played. But it's always the last step. Music is always the last step. But here, they kind of had to figure it out in reverse, because, you know, he puts on the headphones, he calls up a certain song on his iPod, and it has to be that song because, you know, if it's not, you're screwed. The whole sequence goes out the window. I don't know if that's how they did it. I don't know if they did acquire all the rights ahead of time. I don't know if some of them fell through and they had to kind of substitute or change the scenes. But like I was saying earlier, the concept of the movie is that you have this heavy action, somewhat funny movie at times that is all kind of set to the music that the leading actor is listening to. So let's go a little bit through the story. Tell us about who are we dealing with here. We're dealing with a kid. Well, he's more like 20 probably or something. And he's basically a getaway driver for these group of criminals who rob banks. And he's constantly listening to music while he drives. And everyone's like, why are you listening to music while he's driving? But he, that he does it anyway. And he, He's really good at the driving. Right. The first heist that they're dealing with, he's paired up with, let's see, John Hamm and his girlfriend. And John Berthal, who plays another member of that crew. They are robbing, I don't even remember what they're robbing, a bank or something or something. They're robbing something. And when they finish the robbery, they come to the hideout, I guess, to split the money and figure out what's what. And the 
mastermind behind it is Kevin Spacey. We've seen him many times. He plays the typical Kevin Spacey role. He's the man in charge, the man who has the plan. And he kind of explains a little bit about the fact that he is, you know, the getaway driver. He's been using him for a while. And through the film, we learned that his background is kind of like uh, he was a kid. Because we kind of see this a little bit in flashbacks during the movie. That his mother was a singer and a waitress. And his father was kind of abusive. And they're always fighting. And I think his mom gave him an iPod to listen to while these two would fight. To kind of shelter him away from what was happening at home. And at a certain point they get into a car accident where his parents both die and he survives. But as a result of that accident... He is left, you know, he's got a couple of little scars on his face, I guess, to represent the accident. But he also ended up with some kind of an ear damage, some kind of hearing damage that creates, I guess, a certain buzz or a certain ring in his hearing that is very distracting to him. It's almost painful to him. And the only way to kind of drown out that sound that happens is to listen to other sounds. So, for example, putting on the iPod and listening to music is what keeps him... I guess, stable or, or comfortable. Throughout the movie, there's many scenes where, you know, some of these other criminals, you know, keep asking, you know, how can he hear anything that you're, you know, you're giving instructions on, on you know, how this robbery's going to go. How can he hear anything? And even though he's hearing music, he's still listening to what's going on. Now, the beginning, yes, a very elaborate, super action-packed chase sequences with cars. I mean, this movie in my opinion, puts any of the Fast and the Furious movies to shame. Granted, this is not 100% realistic in terms of these things cannot happen this way. However, they're, they're not f- driving a submarine. <laughs> no, no, no. I mean, th- you know, yeah. th- that's why I'm saying it's not Fast and the Furious, ridiculous, James Bondy type of action. These are more credible action sequences in terms of the yeah. cars are not doing insane things they're doing pretty crazy things with these cars some of them i'm pretty sure they could be done some of them maybe not but you know the cars are not flying they don't have wings (laughs) so it's really hard to describe an action sequence but it's just great it's so much fun watching these car chases and what's also cool about it is that it brings me back to the raiders of the lost ark the indiana jones theory of One of the reasons why Indiana Jones works as a hero is because he is not, in a way, James Bond in terms of James Bond can have a fist fight with somebody and turn around and look like he just came out of a a GQ uh, photo shoot. That's the model for a James Bond hero. In Indiana Jones, he gets into a fist fight and he looks like somebody beat the crap out of him afterwards. It shows it's a little more realistic. Here, the car that he drives gets messed up and... He gets knocked around, but he still manages to do what he wants to do with that car. Now, as we said earlier, all this is happening to music that he is hearing on his head. Obviously, the people are not hearing it, but it's all happening in that manner. And when they're in the hideout afterwards, there's a scene where he goes to get coffee for everybody. And he's, he's as he's walking, he's kind of dancing to the music and things are happening around them. And sounds are happening around them through the street that go with that music. Again, this is where you get a little artistic with the, you know, it becomes a little unreal in that way. It's almost, theoretically, it's almost a musical at that point. Because you have reality and 
non-reality interacting with each other in the musical aspect. So that's a very weird little thing that they did in this film that I really don't know if I've seen before. Granted, I don't know if now everybody's going to start copying it, trying, you know, trying to do a knockoff on this type of thing. But anyway, so that's the first height. In this process also, you know, he doesn't get along with some of these guys. The John Berthold character is picking on him all the time. But he's not there much, right? Yeah, he's only there for like the first like 10, 15 yeah, minutes. He's part of the first crew. Yeah. And the robbery goes well. You know, everybody gets their money. And then we find out that the lead character... By the way, his name is Baby. That's why the name of the title of the movie is Baby Driver. And man, is that dangerous to have a name like that for a movie? Because I imagine if people are not watching reviews or listening to they're going to say, I'm not watching this stupid movie. Baby Driver, kind of stupid movie is Baby Driver. Anyway, Boss Baby, Boss baby yeah, whatever the hell. <laughs> Sequel to Boss Baby. So he goes to a diner at one point and he's just relaxing and he kind of starts chatting with this waitress. Yeah, and, you know, through the movie, he starts developing a, a little bit of a relationship with her. She is very friendly and, in my opinion, overly friendly. She is, I don't know if she was constantly flirting with him from the beginning or she's just naive that way. I was starting to think while I was watching the movie, and granted, guys, as usual, this is going to be full of spoilers. It's always full of spoilers. We always spoil everything. While I was watching her interaction with him, I was suspecting that she had other agendas on her. I was thinking she's too nice to him. She's too friendly. That distracted me a little bit, but I was wrong. So he's developing this relationship with her. And when they split the money, we find out that his share of the money, Kevin Spacey basically takes it all for himself and gives him like a stack of bills. And says, okay, this is your second to last job. You got one more and you're done with me. So now we understand that there's some kind of deal with Spacey and this kid that apparently this kid owes him money in some shape or form. So again, the relationship progresses. We also get to meet his foster father, I guess it is, that lives in Baby's apartment. Yeah. Really, it's his father's apartment. And it's played by an older black guy who can't hear or talk. He's a deaf mute, more or less. And that's how they communicate through sign language. So there's another little take on the whole thing of sound here. He communicates with him that way. He hides the money in there. And, you know, you get this feeling that this guy's not going to be around for much longer and that he's kind of trying to help him out. And we also learn that at home, he kind of makes his own mixtapes of sounds that he records while he's doing these jobs. He carries like a little pocket recorder and he's recording some of the meetings they're having, which is very, very dangerous. And then he's setting them to music and doing all kinds of, you know, like uh, scratching and all kinds of musical effects. And then he listens to that stuff too, which is bizarre. So next job comes along, new crew, because we're told that by Spacey's character, that he doesn't really uses the same crew twice. But you thought he meant he doesn't use the same crew twice in a row. So we don't know exactly how yeah, that like, works. Like I like what I was thinking is like he might use some of the same people back to back, but not all of the same people back to back. Well, this crew consists of Jamie Foxx, who is kind of like the crazy one in the group, and two other guys, an Asian guy and a non-Asian guy. The non-Asian guy is played by Flea. My son doesn't 
have any I have clue, no clue what Flea or who Flea His is. face looked a little familiar, though, but I have Flea no is one of the uh, members of the Red Hot Chili Peppers. And oh. he does act every now and then. I think he was in one of the Back to the Future films, believe it or not. He has these roles every now and then. He plays usually some kind of crazy guy. But anyway, but Jamie Foxx, he is the big shot in that group. He seems to be the craziest of the three. The other kind of guys are either new at this or they kind of go along with basically what anybody wants them to do. So during this particular heist that is supposed to be Baby's last heist, we also learn that the reason that Baby and Spacey kind of hooked up together in this deal is because I think he said something like he stole one of Spacey's cars during a heist and... Somehow he lost all the money from the heist, you know, as a result of baby stealing the car. And then he had to ditch the car. So they basically lost all the money. So now he's in debt to him, trying to repay him all that money that he lost through that heist, right? Is that what it was? Yeah. So this particular heist, I think it's a, an armored car robbery. Again, the Jamie Foxx character, similar to the John Berthold character, is very suspicious of baby and... Again, he's all over his ass, basically, in terms of kind of watching him and doesn't trust him and this and that and the other. So keep in mind, this is all set to music. So there's a lot of musical numbers going on while this is happening. They do this heist, but this time around, some of the guards are killed. They actually shoot. I think it might have been Jamie Foxx's character. They actually shoot some of the guards. And they also have a guy who's like a a passerby in a truck who kind of tries to come to the rescue, I guess, of the armed robbery, and they start fighting, chasing each other and shooting at each other and that sort of thing. So at the end of this particular heist, again, they go back, and there is a problem because one of the guys forgot his gun or left his gun behind or lost his gun, and they're having a problem because if you leave the gun behind, I guess you could trace the uh, fingerprint to figure out who they are. So basically, Jamie Foxx's character off-screen kills that guy, leaves him dead in the trunk of a car for Baby then later to have to get rid of that car. So Baby doesn't come out of too well out of this, even though Spacey tells him, you know, you're done with me, thank you, it's been great, you know, have a good life, whatever. He says, okay, and by the way, go get rid of that car. In the car, you got a dead heist member, and he already has on his conscience the fact that there might be one or more dead guards as a result of that particular heist. He's done with this, you know, he keeps meeting with his, I guess, somewhat girlfriend and everything is going swell and she wants to get out of town and quit the, her job because she hates working at that diner and, you know, it's the, again, uh, the more I see her, the more I'm like, oh man, I bet you she works for Spacey or something. She's like a, a mole. I'm doing like my own movie on my head while I'm watching this movie. Are you a genre TV, film, sci-fi, horror, fantasy, toy, and convention nerd? Nerds! 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 Do you enjoy listening to podcasts? It rubs the lotion on its skin or else it gets the hose again. (laughs) Do you ever wish you could co-host a podcast? Mom! Take it easy. Lower it. I'm I'm not going to lower it. I have to do this now. I don't mind you playing it, but lower it. This just might be your chance. Somebody help me! Help me! Shut up! Geekfest Rants is looking for new co-hosts. If you're interested, go to our homepage at geekfestrants.com and click on the hosting icon for more information. So, 
he tells his his foster dad, you know, I'm I'm cleaning up my act. I'm done with these heists. Everything's gonna be good now. I'm gonna and 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 his uh, foster dad even suggests I have a job for you. you. You should go over there. You can make people happy when you drive. And he's like doing what? He's like delivering pizza. People are happy when you deliver pizza. So he starts delivering pizza. And, you know, he finally makes some clean money as opposed to the blood money from the heist. And he takes his girlfriend out to a fancy dinner in a place. And guess who he runs into at that dinner? Spacey. He's there, you know, in his suit with his other business uh, people yeah, he, around. he pays the tab. Right. And he picks up his check and he's, oh, something's not right here. So he's going and talks to him. And he says, yeah, just want to let you know I have another job for you. And this time it's all for you. You know, you don't have to give me any money. You get to keep your share. And he's like, well, I, you know, I don't really want to do this anymore. And Spacey kind of reminds him, listen, you know what I do for a living. And you know what I do to people that say no to me. So it's even though he doesn't directly threaten him, you know, you understand the words being said that if he doesn't go along with him and do this job, Something bad will happen to the people he likes, the people he loves, re any relatives, you know, his foster dad, his girlfriend, him, you know. So he kind of understands that, oh, crap, now I got to do this thing for this guy. So in his mind, the plan is going to be right before doing this job, grab all the money that he's been collecting all this time and take his girlfriend and just run away. Just run away, get away from everybody and start a new life somewhere. So that's what he thinks he's he's going to be able to do. All right, so they start scoping out the location. The location this time around is a, a post office. They're going to rob a post office. They're going to they're going to steal money orders because Spacey apparently has a guy who's going to buy money orders and they're going to make I don't know a million bucks or half a million dollars, whatever doesn't matter. So they go to stake out the office and it's a, a very pretty funny scene because you have Spacey with his nephew, a little kid, was like what ten years old. And he says, all right, take my nephew inside. He's a good cover for you. Uh, go buy some stamps and, and check to see how many cameras, how many guards, how many people, you know, the usual scoping out of a, of a location. And he's kind of nervous because I guess he hasn't done something like that before. Well, no, the, it, it's, it's mostly because the, he said not to listen to his music while he does it. So he's kind of distracted. Right. Plus, he has the you remember, thing. in the back of his mind, he's planning a getaway to get out of this and not yeah, even have true. to do this. So he's all wired up. The little kid is playing like a video game. And I think he might be even wearing headphones too, playing the video game. So while he's getting all nervous asking questions, the little kid kind of takes over and kind of answers some of the questions. And then when they get back in the car, he was like, I don't know, a tank, three cameras, four cameras. And the little kid has the whole plan down. He knows the whole thing, how many guards, and he kind of tells them so he can then tell Spacey. Uh, so that was a, a pretty, pretty funny scene. So before they do the heist, they go and now meet the team. The team now consists of John Hamm, his girlfriend from the first robbery, and Jamie Foxx from the second robbery. So that's kind of odd. It's like, wait a minute. I thought you didn't use the same guys twice. So those guys don't get along. Jamie Foxx doesn't like anybody. He doesn't like Baby. He doesn't like John Hamm and his girlfriend. And they're sent to a meeting to buy guns buy Spacey to go to this place, talk to this guy. They're going to give you the guns. You you know, you go buy some guns. So they go to this uh, warehouse to buy the guns. And the guy who's running the whole thing, they call him the butcher, according to the uh, <laughs> description here. To me, he looks familiar. And he has all these guns on display. And he's talking to them like, 
like they're a meat mark. I guess that's why they call him the butcher. He's saying, well, this is a very nice cut of roast over here, and then you have your prime meats over there. But he's talking about guns and ammunition and grenades. And to me, he looked familiar. I'm like, this guy looks familiar. He's a little short guy wearing a white suit, doing this bizarre presentation. And I finally realized, and I looked it up here, it's Paul Williams, the actor from the 70s, musician, singer. <laughs> it's just amazing they brought him back for this movie. Anyway, so as they're doing this deal, Jamie Foxx's character, who is Bats, his name is Bats, Keep in mind, a lot of these names, are most of these names are fake because these guys are, in a way, anytime they meet and they talk, it reminded me a lot of, of Reservoir Dogs. Yeah. The scene where you're in this warehousey looking desolate place, everybody using fake names going over the plant. I was like, oh my God, this is Reservoir Dogs. Anyway, Jamie Foxx realizes that one of the crates has a certain logo on it and I don't know what it means, but... He just starts shooting up the place. He starts shooting the guy who's selling the guns, starts shooting all his henchmen, and then a huge firefight breaks out. Everybody's shooting at each other. People are getting hit left and right, but our guys are okay. At the end of it, they kill everybody. They steal some guns, and they leave. They go back to the hideout, and they have to explain now to Kevin Spacey what happened. You know, why did... What happened here? They usually... He says he usually gets a call telling him that everything is fine, that everything was okay, and he never got that call, so he was suspicious. And they tell him, yeah, the, the so-and-so, Jamie Foxx's character, uh, realized they were cops, and, and Spacey says, yes, they're my cops. I bought them. They're my guys. He was like, well, something was wrong there. It didn't, didn't look right. It looked like they, they shot first, which they didn't shoot first. Jamie Foxx just went nuts. Again, to me, is another nod to Reservoir Dogs, Mr. Blonde. Mr. Blonde goes nuts and starts shooting up the place. Jamie Foxx went nuts and started shooting up the place. So they are obviously all rattled. And Spacey says, all right, the heist is going to be tomorrow morning. I think for security reasons, now that these cops are all dead, sooner or later the police is going to find out there's a whole bunch of dead cops. Let's all sleep over here. Nobody goes home. Everybody stays together. And that's what they plan on doing. However, Baby's plan was supposed to be get the hell out of there before there and head over you know, to get pick up his girlfriend and get the hell out. So in the middle of the night, he gets up, sneaks out, but on his way out, he gets caught. First, John Hamm sees him, and he tries to convince him, but John Hamm is not really buying it. You can kind of tell that his character is a little nuts, too. He just doesn't seem right. Something's off about him. Jamie Foxx's character shows up, and now you got a problem, because now he can't really leave. So they don't let him leave. They go to his house and come back, and they bring back all the tapes, apparently. Now, he doesn't know what's going on with his father, with his foster dad, so something is going on there. He doesn't know if they hurt him, he's being held hostage, or what, he doesn't know. But they have all his tapes, and they start listening to some of these tapes, and they realize that he's been recording some of these conversations. And he tries to convince them that... He's just making music out of them, that sort of thing. And he's able to kind of prove it because he kind of plays one for them. But in the process, they also notice that one of the tapes is labeled Deborah, which is the name of the girlfriend that at some point I think they might have seen her. Yeah, at the diner they saw her. One, yeah. In one of their earlier diner stops. So they kind of now understand he's got a girlfriend, so that's a weak spot for him. We don't know what happened to his foster dad. So now he's got to kind of go and do it. They don't think he's ratted them out to the cops or anything, but they think that he's just weird and they better keep an eye on him because he might 
flip at some point. So they go through with it. The next morning, they're going in there. They're going to do the robbery. From the beginning, uh, the shooting starts. Even before getting inside, they are in the bag. You know, some of them go in. John Hamm goes in. J.B. Fox, I think, and Baby are in the back ready to wait for them as they exit through the back. But as they're exiting through the back, one of the cashiers comes by, kind of recognizes Baby. Baby kind of waves to her to kind of go away. And she then comes back with a security guard, and Jamie Foxx shoots that security guard, and there you go. Everything is going up in smoke. So at this point, it turns into a combination of running through the streets with the bag full of money orders, John Hamm and his girlfriend shooting him up with the cops. Baby, after Jamie Foxx kills the security guard, he thinks that he's going to turn the gun on him at this point. So he kind of rams the car into a truck that's in front of them. And the truck has, the, I guess, some metal rods and impales <laughs> Jamie Foxx right through the window and kills him right there. At this point, he goes out running. So he's running through the streets. Cops are chasing everybody. Again, action, action, action. Lots of action. Lots of music. So he's running, running, running. Like I said, a lot of action taking place, a lot of music. You're hearing a lot of music. They eventually kind of meet in a certain area, and they can kind of tell that they're kind of trying to go in opposite directions. So John Hamm is trying to get to a baby. The cops are trying to get to John Hamm. The cops are trying to get Everybody's trying to get everybody. So as they're independently going in different directions, and baby is able to find the new car to get away, right as he's getting away, Bang, he bangs into another car that is John Hamm also trying to get away with his girlfriend. So they kind of stop each other from getting away. They try to go in, again, two different directions again. But John Hamm and his girlfriend get kind of cornered by the cops. And they start shooting him up again. And in the process, his girlfriend gets shot and killed. And John Hamm makes a run for it. And Baby makes a run for it in two separate directions. And as a result of this, <clears throat> John Hamm's character now is kind of trying to, I guess, get revenge on baby because he's basically blaming him for his girlfriend getting killed because of the mess of an escape that they tried to do baby knows at this point that everything is going to hell he's got to get out of there get everybody as many people as he can out to a safe place so he takes his foster dad to an assisted living place i guess somewhat nearby because you could see the helicopter still circling and he he stuffs him full of money like all the money he made he stuffs it into his shirt and puts him in the front and records a little uh, cassette that says this is so and so please help him blah 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 here's the money so he's hoping to be able to set him up you know to live there while he's on the run when he gets to the diner to pick up his girlfriend john ham is there waiting for him too so those two have a little bit of a tense moment because some cops are coming in to use the bathroom or something and everybody stays quiet. But then eventually the shooting up starts again. One of the cops, John Hamm's character, kills a cop. And again, we're on the run again. John Hamm now, his mission is to get Baby. Then Baby and his girlfriend, they hijack another car and then they go to Kevin Spacey, basically. And he's asking him for like his one of his tapes which he just wants before he goes. And Kevin Spacey's the first, like, no, I'm not putting up with this crap, no. But then his girlfriend walks in, he's like, oh, this is for a girl. Okay, all right, I'll help you out. So he gives him the tape, and then he gives him a bunch of cash so he can go across the border. And then when they get to the parking garage... Butcher's what, guys. Butcher's guys. Some are, of us, some I guess his leftover Yeah, his surviving. leftover guys, they, they showed up, and they started shooting at them. But Kevin Spacey takes them out as they're running. But then, but he gets killed too. Yeah, but then he gets killed when John Hamm runs out, jump, uh, 
drives in and hits him with the car. So he's back again. Yeah. And it's funny because at this point, <laughs> again, a lot of these things remind me of other movies. John Hamm is a mess. But they light him in a certain way inside the police car that it's all red. It reminded me of the Terminator, the original Terminator film, where he's going through the parking lot looking for them, and all you see is that red light. And they do it very well. It's it's really cool how they did it. So again, another chase scene ensues. Yeah, it's just a, throughout the parking lot, they're just going around in circles and crashing into each other. And then at one point, they kind of fake him out so that he's like stuck into like like a fence. Right, she, he thinks yeah. he's about to hit her because she gets out of the car. And when he sees her, he's going to run over her. Baby's on the other side. And he kind of yeah. rams his car close to the edge of the parking, the, the multi-level parking lot. Mm-hmm. And they have this, you know, this back and forth tug of war type of thing where he's pushing and he's pushing, but maybe he's able to push him far enough so that the, the car just pummels, comes crashing down and explodes. But again, it's never over in these films because apparently his John Hamm's character actually uh, got out of the car. Yeah, he rolled out. And he doesn't shoot directly at Baby, but he shoots at him on both sides of his head so that he can't hear. He's like the ringing of the gun is yeah. driving him completely insane. So baby's on the ground and he's like freaking out because his ears are damaged. But then his girlfriend takes a crowbar and starts trying to wrestle with John Ham's character, but they're kind of locked. And then during that time, he takes the gun off the ground and he shoots John Ham in the leg and then he falls over onto the burden car. And that seems to be the end of the action and the heist and the whole thing. Fast forward now to them driving off in the sunsets and they're trying to, I guess, get out of the state or get out of that area. But the cops find them and he they basically give up. They come out, hands up, and then you see a somewhat of a montage of him. He goes on trial and some people testify on his behalf, his uh, foster dad, and one of his robbery victims even kind of yeah, he talks to that he was kind of trying to warn him that you know to get out of it, you know that kind yeah, of thing. And then there's the the lady. She took her car, but right. then he threw her, her and purse, threw her purse back. back at her. So she's there yeah. too. And apparently he's sentenced to 25 years prison with parole after five years. So we also see him in prison. You know he's doing his job. He's doing the laundry. He's assembling things. You know prison work related stuff. It it seems as if he's not having that bad of a time in there. And all of a sudden, we see him being released. And while there, he keeps getting postcards from his girlfriend about, you know, what they're going to do when they when he gets out. And then we see him getting out. He gets out, and she's there waiting for him. He looks pretty much the same, so I'm going to assume he wasn't there for 25 years. Yeah, he was, he was, he he was probably have... there five years, and he probably got released after five years. That's what yeah. they said, the five years and then uh, parole. The movie pretty much ends there with them driving off after it was all said and done. Cute little ending. Maybe it was a little too long, the ending, the, all the montage. I, you know, the, maybe it was a little... I don't know if there were any, any other alternatives. Maybe of them getting away. I don't know if that was an alternative way of, of rounding it up. But overall, I really enjoyed it. How about you, Kyle? Yeah, this is definitely one of my... I think it'd be my on my top 10 list for movies that are not part of a franchise you know <laughs> a new category yeah because well because because i i mean star wars you know i i, I have to like start love star wars but like i guess movies that don't have sequels in the like you know well not yet <laughs> yeah. remember when you have a successful movie the first thing the studio says we want more now i don't think they're gonna do another one if they we'll do see. i don't think they should well the director I mean, i'm gonna watch it anyway but still <laughs> well we'll see the director is Edgar Wright. Now, 
the reason why I'm familiar with his name before this movie is because he's the guy that left the Ant-Man film. Yeah. He was hired to do Ant-Man and I guess they had creative differences. Yeah, at some he point. was working on the Ant-Man movie since Iron Man came out. <laughs> like he's been constantly working with them on and off, just trying to get something started. And then when they did, they were, they were almost ready to shoot. And then I guess somewhere along the line, he didn't like what they were doing, so he bailed. Yeah. His claim to fame before that was the Shaun of the Dead and Hot Fuzz, those Simon Pegg films, which I'm not entirely a big fan of to begin with. So this is a, a pretty uh, a weird change. He did, however, do Scott Pilgrim vs. the World, which is, again, not a very successful comic book film, but... It has its following. There are people that absolutely love that film. So we kind of know that he can do action. So that's kind of good. And also, more recently, he did At World's End, which is a slapsticky comedy, end of the world type of movie. So I get that. To me, this is a completely new thing for him in terms of the amount of action and to be able to combine the action with the music. That is something completely new that we have that I haven't at least seen before. Again, I wouldn't be surprised if they take this and turn it into a sequel at some point. Or they could also do something like, because now that's the thing to do, is make it in the universe of. So in other words, it doesn't have to be this guy, it doesn't have to be this crew, but it could be taking place in this world where music does play a very important role. You know, you never know. Like I mentioned when we first started, to me this is a much better film than Fast and the Furious. Oh yeah. Fast and the Furious I started out as a, traditional action film then turned into James Bond material and not even modern James Bond and turned into 1970s James Bond material now so that's fine you know there's a market for that you want that you got it but this is you know you have action films that seem to kind of make a mark every now and then on how good of an action film you can have I think this one creates a new standard for okay how do we top this now? I don't know. You tell me how do we top this thing. The the car sequences are great. The editing and the music usage is absolutely fantastic. I bet you this is going to have, I would imagine, maybe some sound editing Academy Award nominations yeah. because the it's yeah, kind of difficult this, this, to combine. This movie is going to get some sort of Oscar recognition. It has to. you know, Not a high up one, but a, probably a technical one. Like it's... 100% on Rotten Tomatoes, you know, I think it it, it could be nominated for uh, Best Picture. It could be nominated. No way, Kyle. You're dreaming it, right it now. It could. No, it doesn't happen that way. Mad Max got nominated. That was different. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Talk about another action standard that was set. The Mad Max action sequences were fantastic. But this one, too, I think deserves a lot of praise. And I would say go see it. It's a fun movie. I went with Kyle myself and my dad so you have three generations of nerds going to see this movie and each of them like them for different reasons so i would definitely put it on the top of my list for one of these i would call sleeper hits of the summer i believe comics are our last link to an ancient way of passing on history worst crossover ever Oh, by the hammer of Thor! Well, what brings you guys here? We're looking for a recommendation about comic books. Oh, well, I recommend you don't open a store and sell them. My spidey sense is tingling. 
On today's comic book segment, I'm going to go over this brand new Star Wars 40th anniversary, The Rise of a Hero. This is a hardback, book-thick <laughs> cover for a very thin comic book that is brand new that was just released. It is written by Louise Simonson, art by Walter Simonson, Tom Palmer, and Laura Martin. Now, from what I understand, these are some of the artists that used to draw the original Star Wars comic book. Not the original artist that put together the original Star Wars comic book, not the movie adaptations that I'm, you know, always talking about, but the line that basically followed afterwards through Marvel Comics. The way that this particular comic works is that they are retelling the New Hope story through the eyes of Luke Skywalker. Now, remember, uh, we talked last week about another comic, uh, I was talking about Aliens at the time, where they did a comic version of the movie retold by the eyes of Newt and how it kind of differed, kind of went back and forth between her eyes and <laughs> somebody else's eyes. But this one at least stays pretty faithful to the concept of keeping the viewpoint of Luke Skywalker. However, because once again, it's a comic book and it's a pretty short comic book, you know, just your average size comic book, I guess, they have to narrow it down to certain events and not every single one. There are certain things that you wish, you know, I'm always like, oh, I wish they would have done this. I wish they would have done that. Now, for deleted scene fans like myself, it's really cool the way it starts off because the panel that the, the whole comic starts off is Luke greeting his friend Biggs in Tatooine, who's come back to you know, tell him about him getting ready to join the rebellion. Now, yeah, this is cool. And, and it's like, you know, I'm never happy. I'm never happy. You get what you get and you don't get upset. But it would have been nice if they would have given us, because it's his point of view, they could have given us the other deleted scenes of him working on the uh, moisture evaporator, looking up in the sky with his macro binoculars and seeing the battle and then rushing back to where his friends are and telling them about it, and, you know, later on, seeing Biggs and that whole thing. That would have been cool, but, uh, okay, you know, that's what we get. Now, the comic is laid out in a different fashion that I, I don't know if I've ever seen before, and that is it uses very big panels, you know, per page. And instead of using the little bubble, the little talking bubbles to tell you who's saying what, they're just using kind of like paragraphs on top, describing the action that takes place in the pain, in the art pain. So that's a little different. By doing that, I guess they're able to compress a lot of information, a lot of scenes into a, into a much narrower format. So you jump from there to, you know, Luke picking up the droids and you see the major sequences and they, they kind of go pretty fast. You know, by the time you get to the fourth page, you're already with him getting ready to chase the droids in the desert somewhere. Now, there are some inconsistencies that I don't know if there are artistic inconsistencies or just a, a way of being able to show you more characters on a pane, even though they weren't necessarily there. The scene where Luke is attacked by the Tusken Raider, in the same frame, we see C-3PO, which you kind of almost see there taking place. But you also see here R2 on top of a ridge up high. Like, I don't know, maybe about a, a story high <laughs> in terms of how high he is, which is... I don't think it's got anything to do with that when you know when you saw the movie. Then we have, you know, the progression of the story. He's meeting Ben for the first time. He goes to Ben's home. Here's the entire message. And then we jump to a two-pane page where we have them discovering that the Jaw was all killed. And then Luke arriving at his moisture farm. 
And the moisture farm is basically on fire, you know, smoke coming out of it. But what's strange is that you see his land speeder, and in his land speeder, you have C3PO R2 and Obi-Wan there too, which again, that did not necessarily happen in the movie. Not sure why, you know, what's the reasoning behind keeping certain things and not keeping certain things. You move pretty fast, like I said, through the story of them uh, arriving at Mos Eisley, having their little skirmish in the cantina, meeting Han Solo, you know, escaping, going up into space, and getting very close to the Death Star. Now, one of the things I noticed with the Death Star and the way they drew it first, and I don't remember if this is how it was in the movie, is that it has the main shot of you seeing the Death Star full, you know, pretty big for the first time. It has the dish array pointing down. Now, I don't remember in Star Wars seeing the dish pointing down. I do remember it in Rogue One, and that's one of the first things I noticed in the trailer that got me thinking, even before knowing what the story was going to be like or what the sequences in the story, but if the dish is pointing down, that means they're shooting something down. They're not necessarily shooting across space, you know, kind of like we've seen before. And because we were seeing all this destruction in a, a planet... That kind of, you know, the trailer kind of gave away a little bit of the fact that they were going to shoot down at a planet. And then you kind of can make the connection also that, well, if the good guy's in that planet and they're escaping that planet, they're not probably going to destroy the entire planet. They're probably doing like a very low power targeting of the planet. But anyway, this was a little odd that all of a sudden you see it. Unless, if I turn this completely upside down, maybe they put the picture upside down. It's a possibility because you have the Falcon flying towards it. And if I look at it upside down, I'm like, oh, yeah, this this could have been what they meant, but they made a mistake. I don't remember the Falcon flying upside down towards the Death Star. Do you know what? I'm thinking about that, and that's probably what it is. This is probably a mistake. On page 20, the Falcon does not approach the Death Star upside down. The Falcon does not fly upside down to get to the Death Star. So if you turn it right side up, it makes a heck of a lot of sense. Wow, that's really weird. So once inside the Death Star, they quickly have, you know, the switch to the Stormtrooper costumes. They're engaging Stormtroopers, getting the princess out. Here's something that's really, really, I don't know if I want to call it weird, but cute, if you will. Every time a laser bolt gets fired, most of the times anyway, they write pew, 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 P-E-W, 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 which is kind of like, wow, is that... <laughs> That's the route they want to take with laser blast sounds. That's really, again, it's not stupid, but it's kind of cute. It's kind of like, it's very kiddish. And they do it a lot. They do it quite a bit here. Every, most of these scenes, they're doing the, the, the whole pew, pew, pew thing, which is funny. I've seen shirts labeled pew, pew, pew on sale. So you got the, the trash compactor scene. Now, here's something that bothered me about the movie, something that you have to take creative license, I guess. And I can see it here, and I don't know why it's coming. It's kind of coming up here a little more than, than, than before, and that is how on earth, because I never saw Luke and Han carrying a backpack, let's say, but how on earth are they able to put on Stormtrooper armor on top of their already existing clothes? Now, I know, I know we're, we're getting into super nerd boy territory here, but... Let's just think about this for a minute. Sometimes in movies, you're able to do that. You're able to disguise yourself as someone else. And then you 
change your clothes back or you just keep those clothes or something like that. Or you just put on new clothes afterwards. You know, you do lose your clothes at some times, you know, in the progression of a story. Okay, fine. So here, if they are not carrying backpack backpacks, which they're not, we are meant to believe that on top of Han's outfit and on top of Luke's outfit. Now, keep in mind, these guys are not wearing leotards. <laughs> they're wearing comfortable clothes. Luke's clothes are very baggy. He's wearing basically a karate top pants, which I remember they're technically they were like faded white jeans, I think completely white jeans, and boots, you know, that go pretty high up. Han is wearing a vest, a shirt, pants, kind of tight pants, if you will. You know, okay, maybe he could get away with it. Boots, he's also wearing a form of boot. Now, when they're walking around with escorting Chewbacca through the Death Star, there's absolutely no sign whatsoever of anything they were wearing before. So are we to believe that they're wearing all that underneath? How do you put on a pair of Stormtrooper boots on top of your already existing boots? I mean, yes, Luke could hide a, a lightsaber, let's say, unless he left the lightsaber in the Falcon, but his top is huge. It's very bulky, loose. Now, the reason why I'm saying this is because my son recently purchased, and he finally got it after, I don't know how many months of waiting for it, a Stormtrooper outfit. You know, he's going to be joining the 501st, so we are now going through the process of getting this armor ready, cutting the pieces that need to be cut, sanding the pieces that need to be sanded, and you cannot put an inch of anything anywhere that doesn't belong without it looking funny. So going back to the Stormtrooper thing here, it just strikes me particularly odd that is something that was never addressed and something that could have been written in a way so that you could kind of give a decent explanation as to what's happening. You can't even say that their clothes were waiting for them. You know, they left the, a bag of clothes, you know, they left a backpack full of clothes hidden somewhere and they retrieved it and then they were able to change their clothes. And I don't think you can say that because the garbage shoot that they escape from when they come out of there they're already changing into their clothes they're already putting on their clothes or putting on their clothes or or taking off their clothes i don't know whatever but it's right there so it's not like they went to the garbage chute first deposited their clothes and then went back upstairs because remember they went down this long you know slide <laughs> to get to the garbage chute. so it is one of these things that that kind of still kind of bothers me and for whatever reason while i'm reading this comic it kind of all brought it back now the other question is why would luke choose to keep the stormtrooper belt i know it makes perfect sense because this way he can use the grappling you know the grappling hook to, yes it makes sense in that way but that's an odd thing you know it's an odd thing. <laughs> you know it's it's kind of weird anyway it's silly it's a silly little complaint but you know that's what i do now the comic book, again, goes through the normal process of escaping the Death Star and the, the shooting down on the Death Star. And it still stays pretty loyal to the concept of through Luke's eyes. All these events are taking place through his eyes, which is really kind of cool. He even has a little reunion back before the attack with Biggs, which is, again, the, the, like you have those bookends kind of situations where you do introduce him, you introduce Biggs here, and you kind of reintroduce him towards the end. Now... As they approach the Death Star, again, pretty good the way they do it. Even the ships firing, you see the pew pew pews, which is kind of, it's, again, it's cute. It's very cute. And one of the things that I noticed on the Death Star, and something that similar to the Stormtrooper clothing 
issue from earlier, there's another issue that kind of came up that I was reminded while looking at these panes here is that the equatorial trench on the Death Star. We've seen pictures of the Death Star. And the reason I bring this up is because I I, I saw an article recently, not too long ago, that kind of confirms that, not only confirms it, but it brings up the point that the equatorial trench, and by equatorial, I'm talking about the equator. If you're looking at the Death Star, dish pointing 45 degrees up, there appears to be a trench right in the middle. The globe is divided in two by what looks like to be a trench. Well, from what I've read in this article, that trench is not the trench that these guys are doing their attack run on. I don't know how they figured it out, but I think this is something that came from one of the ILM guys. It might have even been John Knoll, for all we know. I have to dig up their article. I'll see if I can post it if I find it. They talk about the fact that based on the shots of the movie and the location and the size, the equatorial trench would be way too big and too wide for it to be the actual trench where the TIE fighters and the X-Wings are flying through. The most basic way to realize that is that the Death Star is the size of a moon, a small moon. Okay, got it. If you're looking at this trench from far away and you can see it, that thing has to be huge. The width would have to be very, very wide. Now, the trench that these guys are going through in order to get to the uh, exhaust ports, it can hold about three, four ships, tops, in terms of next to each other. You remember when Vader and the two TIE fighters are chasing Luke and and Han hits one of the TIE fighters. It hits one guy, the other guy goes flying out and the ship crashes right to the side. You cannot fit too many ships, so you can kind of determine what the width of that trench is. But again, through this article, they were able to kind of put together the, the theory or the fact, really, that it has to be a much thinner trench in terms of When you look at it from far away, it's not just a matter of going for that big old trench in the middle. They would be too far away from wherever this port is located. So I'm going to see if I can find that article. Again, another silly little nitpicky thing that kind of, I'm sure some people were thinking about for some time, but it was not until they actually took a closer look at it. Because, I mean, if you do look at the Death Star, you do see other lines that are forming into sections all over the place. Obviously, it's not a life-size model, so you cannot have it, uh, you know, shown exactly where it should be. But it's one of those things that the equatorial trench, and I'll tell you even better, I'll give you a better one. If you remember in, might have been Return of the Jedi, or even maybe in Star Wars, when the Falcon is arriving... And also, when in Return of the Jedi, when the uh, Imperial troops are all on display before the Emperor's arrival, I believe, I think you do get a better shot of the Equatorial Trench. And that's where most of the incoming ships go into. The Equatorial Trench is more like a giant hangar entrance section. Not an actual hole on the Death Star, but a section where you kind of enter. When you see the the Falcon coming into it in Star Wars, you kind of see that it's it's going into a an encased area, a hollowed out kind of area. And you do kind of see that, that you see that from a profile. On Return of the Jedi, you kind of see it from in front. You're seeing that all these ships are parading kind of in front, all the TIE fighters and stuff, they're all kind of doing this parade type of formation in front of the what looks like to me like the Equatorial Trench. So it is very different and it's something that we kind of confuse. You kind of think, oh, yeah, yeah, that's the trench. That's where the, the, the ships went. It's like, no, no, that's not it. That's different. Anyway, the comic, again, 
follows the destruction of the Death Star all the way through. You have Luke and Han and uh, I forget which other X-Wing and Y-Wing escape. They reach Yavin 4's moon to the uh, celebration sequence where everybody's all happy and stuff. And again, it does end the way it does. It it does hit the main points. Overall, I guess it's okay. It's a nice little comic to have. I don't know if they're going to then try to do a, a an Empire version of this through Luke's eyes kind of storytelling because this is uh, tagged on top as Star Wars 40th, you know, anniversary kind of logo on it. Uh, maybe it's just a one shot and it's an excuse to bring these artists, you know, and writers back into the into the mix because I, I don't know, I because I've never collected those, those post-movie adaptation Star Wars comics originally. I never followed their work. I don't know how far they got. I don't know if they've ever returned to Star Wars before. But I guess it's a cute little, you know, one-off type of thing. And and it is nice. I mean, the packaging is super nice. The fact that you have a hardcover on a, on a comic. This is similar to the movie adaptations that Marvel reissued, you know, in the hardcover modes that I've, I've been buying. It's similar to that, if you will. In terms of having something, obviously this is way much thinner than those. Super, super much thinner because uh, there's just not as much information. But it would have been nice, I would say, because if you do put the money and the time to put a hardcover on something, I just wish they would have done more in terms of put more scenes. Make it two times bigger. Make it three times bigger. Put more art into it. Put all the deleted scenes that involve Luke in here. You know, you know, go all the way out with something that's hardcover. It makes it a little more valuable, a little more special. So... Is this something that you must have if you're a Star Wars comic book collector and or just a regular Star Wars? Not necessarily. I wouldn't say this is a, a life or death type of thing. This isn't even the type of thing that I would say, oh my God, there's an extra thing here that I never knew or never understood or never this or never that. Not really. Not really. But it is nice to have deleted scene material, you know, added in some shape or form. So I did appreciate that. And like I said, the packaging is really nice, the way that they put together, you know, the cover and that sort of thing. So, you know, depending on your guides for your particular focus collecting, this might be a good purchase for you. You can collect them all. You are a toy! Batteries not included. Just get those wonderful toys. Details on specially marked packages at participating stores. Is that the $6 million man's boss? It's Oscar Goldman. Why do you have that? That's worth a lot of money. That's much more valuable than Steve Austin. Action figures each sold separately. Hi, I'm Chucky, and I'm your friend to the end. Some assembly required. All your favorite Star Wars heroes and villains. I have three of each. One to display, one to open, and one just in case. All right, well, on today's toy segment, we are going to look at another that could be considered a classic line of 70s toys. I'm talking about Battlestar Galactica, one of our all-time favorite television shows. Super huge fan of the remade, reboot, rethinking, reimagining <laughs> a version later in the 2000s. Uh, But we are going to look at the original toy line, especially the action figures I'm talking about. This is a line that, while I was collecting Star Wars figures, I had picked up a few of those. Because, as 
you very well know, Star Wars completely took over my life uh, as far as collecting went. And there was very little room in between Star Wars, but some stuff did trickle into my collection. I watched the show. I believe it must have been on reruns because the show only lasted a very, very few seasons. And by the time I got here, I think it must have either been ending or in rerun mode and it remained on rerun mode for quite a while in different channels and different stations throughout the country now the specific ones i had purchased were the classic cylon the silver chrome cylon the brown daggett the funny little dog thing the ovion kind of bug-eyed creature and the imperious leader with the purple robe and bizarre looking face now, let me first review those in terms of how good they were. <laughs> this is also, uh, keep in mind, this is Mattel, this isn't Hasbro. So it's a different kind of method, I guess, in constructing them. They are kind of in that three and three quarter inch scale, more or less. They're a little different in how they are sculpted. Because of some of these creatures are very large, you know, they're like twice as thick or three times as thick as some of the other more human creatures. The Cylon is just a classic, classic Cylon. Has a great gun he's holding. He's got a great stance. I would imagine it's probably one of the most popular one of them all. He's a little taller than the uh, than the human figures, just like in the show. The Ovion creature. That's that green creature with like, I think he had like four arms. And in the show or in the movie, if you will, they, they made it into a little movie. He's one of those creatures that kidnaps our heroes and some of the humans and they're kind of encasing them in an underground type of layer. Well, it's a very nice sculpt, like I said. It does have those forearms that are pretty cool-looking, very bug-eye-looking creature, and it comes, or at least it came, with this golden-colored, see-through, kind of very flimsy robe, almost like a scarf, if you will, <laughs> not a full-blown coat. And that is one of the things that got lost first, because that thing is so flimsy and so kind of useless that I remember I probably lost that the First day I got it. The other one is the Imperious Leader, which I've always had a problem with this, and I'm sure a lot of people did, and that is that it looks, to me, nothing like what the Imperious Leader looked like. Granted that in the show, you almost never see him full-blown, so it's really hard to make a assessment of how good it's made, because you're seeing him here in complete detail and you really don't have too much reference material unless you try to dig up some old, you know, behind the scenes type of stuff. But in the show, they always kept him slightly in the shadows type of, you know, type of deal. He It's just not a very nice looking figure. It looks almost like a purple frog face looking thing. And if you remove the robe, which everybody obviously did, it's a very plain, thin, the proportions don't really match what the head is. That is probably one of the weakest of all of those figures, I would imagine. And the last one that I originally had was the Daggett. Now, I, I'm calling it the brown Daggett because I know they released two different versions of it. This is the one that color matches a little closer to what the show was. This was an excellent, excellent, excellent figure once again proven that when it comes to robots or something like robotic or even creatures to a certain extent robots are just great the way they make them because they are so true to their likenesses when they actually you know manufacture them the joints are great the way it moves the way it looks the way you can kind of move the head and even the tail a little bit it's an excellent excellent figure now those were the first original ones that i purchased and those kind of stayed with me for a while 
Unfortunately, as in most of my stories, throughout my different moves, especially during one big move, I lost those figures. I have no clue what happened to them. Again, I, I, I know I'm going to take this to my grave, that damn football case that I had all my Star Wars large ships and all the odds and bits and ends of stuff that I didn't want to display at the time all ended up in that bin. And I'm sure these figures ended up in that bin somehow. But I can't help myself. I'm going to cry about that forever until I can no longer breathe. So not too long ago, uh, you know, one of my goals was to kind of rebuild my, you know, old collections and that sort of thing. So I was able to pick up a series of Battlestar Galactica figures. And in that series came those four figures I just mentioned that were my original ones, plus two other ones that I had never owned before. One of them is Commander Adama, which is, you know, one of my first human figures. This is a pretty cool looking figure. Comes with a, uh, a half robe, and this is one of those things that, just like the Ovion, a lot of people lose that robe. Anything that's loose that could come off, you can't help it. You're a kid, you lose little loose things. So, finally, you know, I have my, my first human one, and I also got a Lieutenant Starbuck. Again, another human one with a half robe, and this one, originally, I believe, also came with a blaster or a gun or some sort of gun. I don't have the gun. The gun didn't come with him. Again, little thing, get lost. These are great looking figures. The proportions are very well to, you know, very well made to the rest of the other figures. The odd thing about them is that, you know, the sculpts are very, very good. But one thing that, for whatever reason, this particular line didn't bother doing much is painting details on the face. Like I said, the sculpts are pretty well done. You know, they're kind of like the likenesses of these particular characters, but they never went as far as. Hasbro did, where they go in there and they actually paint eyes, paint the mouth, maybe some eyebrows, maybe some facial hair, you know, stuff like that. And that is where these figures kind of lack. They, they, that little tiny bit of extra detail kind of makes them one notch below, you know, your typical Star Wars figure. Now, we got to remember that this particular line you know, came out in the late 70s, similar to Star Wars, more or less. They are post-Star Wars, probably pre-Empire. And they are trying to emulate, not only was the show more or less emulating Star Wars in a way, but the figures are kind of emulating the three and three-quarter scale. So they're trying to, I think, cash in a little bit on the Star Wars, you know, popularity. But the fact that they chose that to make themselves different I think was a major, major mistake. Now, I'm not saying that if they would have done that, this line would have been, you know, 10 times bigger. I'm not saying that. The line would have died anyway. When the show dies, the line dies, just like anything else. But as far as the figures that were produced at the time, they just don't measure up to Hasbro in my point. Now, granted, you know, again, I'm a big Star Wars guy. I'm always going to be biased with Star Wars. But Again, these two are two additional figures that I got in this particular batch, and that's what I own right now. I own those six figures. However, there were more figures that were put out, and I don't have those yet. Maybe I will one day. Let me give you some of the other ones. There is a Baltar figure. He is, again, because he's one of these human figures, he doesn't seem to have any additional cloth capes or anything. He's just a plastic figure dressed in a typical kind of black Ish. You know, he's the baddie, bad guy kind of traitor, you know, character. Later in the show, he became the lead bad guy. So 
he is a little difficult to find sometimes. I'm still searching for him. Then there's the Bore action figure, which I guess he's one of these background creatures that I don't really remember much. I don't. Re- I couldn't tell you which episode he is from. He kind of looks like he's got a humanish body, but his head is kind of like a bat or a pig, fleshy, pinkish, orangish skin tone. Like I said, I don't remember exactly where he's from, so I don't have him. There is a golden Cylon, which is, I imagine they just repainted or recasted the material. It's supposed to be the Cylon Commander. And if you remember the show, if I remember the show, sometimes when they're flying on their uh, ships, I think they're raiders, there's a commander and there's two pilots or a pilot and a co-pilot. And the commander is the one in gold. But from the look of what I've seen, that is available out there. He looks pretty much the same. You know, like I said, the sculpting, they probably use the same molds. I also mentioned earlier that there's a second Daggett, which is a lighter colored Daggett. And I don't think there's any confusion in terms of it being a different character. I believe he is just a variant. A variant that comes in a much lighter shade than the regular Daggett. So I do not believe that in any shape or form they try to create a second character for this finally the rarest of them all from what i understand the one that's a little hard to find might be a little more expensive too it's lucifer lucifer is the how should we say uh, he's kind of like the first lieutenant of the bad guys especially when baltar takes over he is the guy that comes to deliver him the news of how things are going and he's a you know very very squirmy, evilly looking guy. Very unusual design. You could kind of say that it's true to the show in terms of molding. However, in the show, he seems to be kind of a little translucid. A lot of lights going on, like around his head area. He's definitely robotic, but doesn't look like a Cylon. For the figure... From what I've seen, and again, this is one of those rare ones, so you don't really see them that often, but on the internet, you'll find plenty of pictures. They made him pretty solid red. They don't seem to be using cloth at all. They seem to have molded him in completely red plastic. But the top of his head, like from his forehead up, it kind of, it's not a curved head. It's more like a pointy-ish type of head. The point of this head, if you will, is slightly translucent blue to give him that sort of look that the show had now granted the show like i said before it's much different the show did have a little more color to him but again any of his scenes just like the original bad guy in the show the original imperious leader they kind of kept him in the shadows they wanted to minimize his exposure because i guess it just doesn't look that well he sounded really cool and evil look sounding but for the show they kind of you know But for the figure, now that you see him, you're like, ooh, that looks kind of weird. And also the fact that his robes are solid kind of hurts you a little bit, uh, you know. Now, don't get me wrong, with the Star Wars line, you know, you have the Emperor with a solid grayish robe that is not made out of any cloth. You know, okay, that's kind (laughs) of, you know, that's kind of different. But in this case, I don't know why, but for some reason, it just sticks out too much. Also, the pigment of the red that they use for his head also to me looks way too off it almost looks like a prototype i'm looking at an unpainted prototype and because of the fact that like i mentioned earlier that they purposely for some reason don't put too much detail into the eyes and mouth 
that red just seems to absorb everything. So that's, you know, what you have to look forward to if you're ever looking to get him. Now, with that said, don't get me wrong, I'm still every now and then poking around to see if I can complete the collection. I'm only short, let's see, one, two, three, four, five. I'm short about five. And from what, again, from what I understand, Boltar and I think Lucifer are probably the hardest ones to find. But, you know, I could get lucky and luck out and find them. These were all sold, obviously, individually as figures. But I've seen pictures of packages, like box sets that had, you know, the six that I own right now. So there's a good chance that the ones I own right now came from somebody who owned that, you know, that box. You know, it kind of would make sense. Now, what's bizarre about this line is, and again, I don't know the history. I haven't researched the history as much as I would with Star Wars. But just like anything else, the show's dying. Everything stops. Production stops. I'm sure that down the line, the plans would have been to make an Apollo figure. How can you have Starbuck without Apollo? How could you release a weird-looking alien without Apollo? He's like the second biggest, you know, Starbuck and Apollo. Those are the stars. And then Adama. Okay, those are the three right there. There's your Kirk, Spock, and McCoy. <laughs> but I don't understand why would they wait for Apollo for a future wave, you know, Okay, maybe the plan was that this was going to last years and years and years, and there's going to be plenty of time to bring more important characters, you know, down the line. Yeah, I understand that, but just like anything else, you always run the danger of being shut down prematurely, and then, guess what? You're missing out on major characters. There were many other characters, not as important as Apollo, that they could have done. There's so many more colonial individuals, Obviously, more they could have probably done a few more aliens, a few more, you know, of the different types of characters. And not too much, really, if you think about it, because, uh, you know, you don't really want to deal with the, 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 the freak of the week or the creature of the week or the, or the guest star of the week, you know. But you could have had the uh, <laughs> Lloyd Bridges. You could have had the captain of the Pegasus. Oh, that would have been something. A Lloyd Bridges action figure. See, there's something that could, somebody could. I'm sure somebody modified and made a custom somewhere. Or, obviously, hey, for you early 80s rock fans, you could have had Rick Springfield. You could have had Zach. <laughs> so, anyway, this line, obviously, there's many ships and all kinds of accessories that came with it. I never got that far with it, so I'm not going to go into it because, you know, it's, it's just not the thing. This is also the infamous line that triggered the issue with... Star Wars and the rocket firing in Boba Fett. This line apparently had one particular toy that had a rocket firing Viper, I believe, one of the ships. And some kid got the rocket shot out into his mouth, I think, and he choked on it. The kid died as a result of it. But bottom line is that as a result of that, they made some new rules about what toys could do and couldn't do, resulting in the rocket firing in Boba Fett no longer being rocket firing. They welded it into the you know, into the jetpack, and then released it in that form, uh, both on the individuals that order it with the free proofs of purchases, and the people that eventually bought it in the store, you know, with a with an actual carded figure display. But that's where it all started. Unfortunately, it was with Battlestar. But like I said, there were many more, but I never got into the actual ships. It's more manageable now, for obviously space and cost reasons to focus on the figures. And again, that's one of my collecting habits is 
focus on something that doesn't have too many of them, and then uh, you know I can kind of concentrate. So right now I have two, four, six figures, and I'm missing one, two, three, four, five. And little by little, maybe I'll find those, maybe I won't, doesn't matter. But it kind of, again, just like everything else, it kind of brings me back to the earlier, more easier days in our childhood. Well, I hope everybody enjoyed today's show. From our Baby Driver review to our Star Wars comics to our Battlestar Galactica action figures. I'd like to thank Kyle for joining me today. And as usual, thank you guys for listening. And we will see you here next time at GeekFest Rants. Bye-bye, everybody. Mattel's Battlestar Galactica Collection. You can imagine the Imperious leader commands the Cylon Centurion to capture Daggett. Make Daggett lead us to the humans. You can imagine Daggett fears Oviar the enemy with insect arms. Lieutenant Starbuck. Yes, Commander Adama. Prepare for secret mission. Each figure sold separately. Daggett, Imperious leader, Cylon Centurion, and Oviar. Each figure sold separately, not for use with other Battlestar Galactica toys. New from Mattel. If you would like to subscribe to our show, send us messages, or see video links to some of the topics we talked about today, please visit our homepage at geekfestrants.com or our YouTube channel, Facebook page, or iTunes at Geekfest Rants. I don't know what we're yelling about! Geekfest Rants is produced by Carlos Perone, copyright 2017. This broadcast is part of the IC Robots radio network. Visit icrobots.com for this and many other nerd slash nostalgia related podcasts. You won't be sorry for long. <laughs>